I find for myself, and I know this is probably not true for anyone else, it's really tough to go from hearing something to making it happen. And I come across so many really inspiring, uplifting, life, potentially life-changing concepts, perspectives. Sometimes I'll bump into them over and over. You know, I'll get this message about that love is the most important thing in life. And sometimes I will understand what that means and it will change my perspective. And then I go back. I go back to how I was and how I was. So how do I get it so that all this work that all of you are putting in, that I'm putting in, and trying to pursue the good life, changes us, makes its mark. And another way to talk about being changed as a person is to talk about habits. So today, I want to work through how to develop heavenly habits with you. And just in part even from that awesome alliteration in the title, how to develop heavenly habits, even beyond the grammar of it. Habits are great. They don't sound like they're that exciting, but with some of the material that we're about to cover here, I almost jumped out of my chair when I first read it because I felt like that's the missing piece. That is how I take all this jumble of thoughts and feelings and best intentions and move it into me getting to the destination of where it is. So to help us make that journey and develop our heavenly habits, I want to give or read a message that is transmitted to us across orders of magnitude of time. In particular, I want to look at a message that was given to us about 2,000 years ago by Jesus. And then something very similar about 200 years ago in New Church Theology or Emanuel Swedenborg. And then about 20 years ago in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's more like 30, but that doesn't really fit my template. Who's checking? So see if you can hear, and it's said in different ways, but all of it is absolutely circumnavigating this core principle that is at the center, of course, because it's the core, of life change. Okay, so first we'll, we'll start with most recent and go back. So in this book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is a, it's a seminal classic in its field, of course I've read it, well actually I have it, I just started listening to it while I was mowing the lawn, but it already has hit me because I started to get into all this habit literature. But there's this quote in it that says, to learn and not to do is really not to learn. Sounds a little Yoda. To know and not to do is really not to know. And it's a potent statement. It says, concepts, knowledge, the things we learn only exist in potential until they've been brought out into act. Then, this is, we're going back to 200, really 250 years. This is Swedenborg in Secrets of Heaven. Truths are said to have been imprinted on the life when they become matters of will 
and consequently of action. So you can have these ideas, but they're not in your life until they're implanted on your will. As long as they remain fixed solely in the memory, and as long as they are regarded on solely an intellectual level, they have not been imprinted on the life. Think about a stamp, like, boom, that's there. It's tattooed, and there's some song like tattooed on my heart. But as soon as they are accepted with the will, the will being the part of us that wants things, that, that motivates us, the why that we do things, not just the knowledge of how, they are made part of the life because willing and consequent action are the real essence of the life of a person. Who am I? It's not just, it's not really what I know. It's what I want and what I do. That makes me who I am. And it's not how I look. It's not my possessions. It's what I want and what I do from that. That's the essence of the life of us. Till then, these truths have not become the person's own. And if you're thinking about what possessions would you want to have, well, certainly truths. I wouldn't want to not have those stamped on me. Then let's get to Jesus. And I want to talk about the parable of the sower. We're not going to read it because we've got some really exciting Bible passages coming up. So we're going to paraphrase this one. But our, if you're familiar with the parable of the sower, Jesus is sitting, disciples are there, and there's some other people, if memory serves, and he's giving out this message and he's talking about a sower. So somebody has all these seeds, and I've referenced this here at New Church Live before. Somebody has all these seeds and throws them out. I guess is walking and throwing and walking and throwing. And the sto- that's really the only part the sower plays. It's called the parable of the sower, but sower's not really doing much. What, what the, where the action is, is the ground. The star of the story is the ground because the rest of the story is about, well, in some areas, those seeds fall and it's stony, so they don't really take. There's places where it falls and the birds come up and eat it. There's places where it falls and, well, I think that's in the stony ground where it shoots up, but there's not enough root. And when it gets hot, like it is in August in Pennsylvania, it withers. And there is a place where the seed falls and it grows and it produces fruit. And the disciples say, what are you talking about? Why are you telling us about farming? We, we're fishermen. We already know how to make a living. We already know how to get sustenance. He's saying that this, the seeds are the word. That story is all about how truth is received, how ideas are received, and that all, all these different places of ground didn't bring it into their life. They didn't make it a habit except where the ground was good and it could grow. So we're talking in all these amazing sources of knowledge. We're talking about how do you take something and imprint it on your life, make it part of what you want, who you are, and what you do. And that's probably something, a concept that you've heard before, but it's very, it was very hard for me to put it into action this is where some of what you can find in modern habit theory 
can really help you take that step to do what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the sower, to do what Swedenborg is talking about with the imprinting of the truth on your life. The book I want to focus on here is actually called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. And we want to take the principles that are in this book and apply them. Here they're written for any kind of habit. We want to apply them to spiritual habits, to heavenly habits. How can we use that to be that good ground so that when some, some really excellent seed falls on there, and I know you've probably all had it where you hear a principle, you hear a concept, or even a perspective, you get some sort of rush of feeling and compassion. You know, oh, I want to be more like that, but then it slips away. How do you do that? That's what we're going to be looking at. So this is from Atomic Habits, page 41, and there are three amazing concepts in here that we'll take in sequence. First, there are three levels of change. Outcome change, process change, and identity change. So outcomes is the actual activity that you do. I bit my nails. The process is, that's a negative habit, fine, we'll do a positive one. I, I jumped rope for 10 minutes. Then the process is, well, how do I get there? Well, I bought a jump rope, I put it somewhere where I could see it, and I set an alarm that tells me that I've got to go and do my jump rope. And the identity is, who, what kind of person would go and and jump rope, and how do I convince myself that I am that kind of person? Second point, the most, and I know you've already read ahead. I know I shouldn't have put these all on the same slide. The most effective way to change your habits is to focus not on what you want to achieve. I thought habits was all about New Year's resolution. I'm going to do thing X more times per week. That's not what it is. Not on what you want to achieve, but on who you wish to become. Your going to the third one, your identity emerges out of your habits. Every action is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. The example that he gives in the book, which makes it very clear to me, what is identity change and how does this drive habit change, as he says, imagine that you have a habit of smoking cigarettes and you don't want to smoke anymore. The difference, there's a huge difference between somebody's offering you a cigarette and you say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. And no thanks, I'm not a smoker. That what we believe about who we are ultimately is what drives our habits. And the most effective way to not backslide is to change who we believe that we are. Because you can, for a little while, keep up that energy to do a habit that's out of character with, with who you really think you are, but life is gonna encroach in and eventually we're gonna find ourselves like, oh yeah, I left my clothes all over the floor again. Because I, I don't really believe that I am a tidy person. 
And what's cool about this is taking it spiritually, I think, opens up a much more holistic, positive direction for it. Because we can ask the question, not who do I want to be? A big part of the Atomic Habits book is what kind of person do I want to be? And then these habits can help us get there. But we don't know who we want to be. I don't. There's been many periods in my life where I wanted to be the best basketball player in the world. I wanted to be the best musician in the world. I wanted to be cooler than everybody else. I, who, who am I to say at any age that I really know what kind of person I should be? And there's plenty of times we can get notions in our heads. Of, it would be really great if I was this. That is not what's great for me and not what's great for everyone. But what is a system in which if we're asking a question it makes life better for everyone. It's when you're asking, who does God want us to be? And if we can apply this powerful method for changing our identity, and we already have the blueprint, we already have God telling us, well, here's the direction you should go. Let's marry those two things together and create some really good life change. So who does God want us to be? I've got three examples that I really love here. And I think there's no definitive answer to that. There's a lot of places where you can pick up what seems like advice from the divine. You may have it in your heart, but let's dwell on these pretty famous ones and see if we can start to get a picture again with these, these sort of three points around the circumference of who is God calling us to be. This is from Micah, number six. And it says, and this is something you you might know this one. I swear I've sung a song with these as lyrics at some point in my church-going youth. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want? Who does God want you to be? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Oh, that's it? Oh, that's a lot better than my requirements list. Think about if you sat down and said, well, who, who do I need to be? Do I need to be successful, good-looking? Uh, I need to be organized. Uh, I've got to be cool. I've got to be everything. I've got to have this, and I've got to mow the lawn and do justly love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And it is this paradigm shift on what's important in life. There's a book called Return from Tomorrow with George Ritchie. And it was one of the first near-death experience books, if you've ever read those. And I read it when maybe I was 20 And it's the story of a guy who was in the army, he got really sick, and had what we now call a near-death experience, where he's, you know, my life flashed before my eyes, and I was sitting there in the presence of God, and there were, there was this review of what's important in my life. And he has this poignant scene where he's 
trying to think of what would be important in that review. And he thinks, oh, well, I got my Eagle Scout one time. I got my Eagle Scout. So let's, let's look at that. And he was shown, like, really gently and really lovingly that that moment actually wasn't, any, wasn't about who God was telling him to be. Because in that moment, getting his Eagle Scout, he's really just focused on his own greatness and how he had done that better than other people, which has got its place, like achievement and discipline and motivation and goal setting. It's got its place, but it's not who God is asking us to be. Who God's asking us to be is somebody who does justly loves mercy and walks humbly with God. Okay, let's do another one. This is from Matthew 22. This is when we have a lawyer asking just on the record, under oath, Jesus, what's the most important thing in life? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And I would extrapolate that out to say all of life. Everything is hanging on this love God or love what is good because when we talked before about who are we really, we are our motivations and what we do, right? We were just saying that a minute ago. What's God's motivation? Love for everyone. God is the love for the whole human race. This is, this is what drives God. And what does God do, which is the love of the neighbor, is reaches out to try to make everyone's life better and inspire us to make each other's life better. So that is, if, we're, if we are to be, like they say, in the image and likeness of God, that is surely a signpost toward who we're supposed to be. But that's not even my favorite one. I don't know if this is if that's improper to like rank Bible passages above each other, but I really love this one. No offense, Matthew twenty-two. You're very famous. Everybody loves that one. But this one, I don't know if if a lot of people have heard it, but it is the most potent imagery. So this is Jeremiah seventeen verses seven through eight. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. So that's who we're, what we're meant to do. And what condition, what kind of life does that give us? Don't read ahead, just kidding. For he shall be, just, just let this sink in. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit how would you like to be like a tree that was lucky enough when all those seeds went scattering out from the parent tree, and they all landed, and some landed in some, some hot hill, and some landed in some valley, but you landed 
by the river. So if you think about the roots of the tree going out and even meeting where the water table is, so that it doesn't matter what's going on with the temperature, what's going on with the 10-day forecast, you've got your water there. It'd be like a tree planted by the river and will not fear when heat comes, when life is throwing stuff at you, you've got your own well of internal strength to draw on, but its leaf will be green. And listen to this, not going to be anxious in the year of drought, because you've got that source, but nor will cease from yielding fruit. So fruit is this picture, yielding fruit is a picture of those good actions that we're called to do. And the idea that even when things are hard, we're still gonna be affecting the world in positive ways. Is there anything more inspiring than that? You always read these stories about people who, even though they had this really hard, you, you think about healthcare workers and they had this incredibly hard double shift, but they're still going in, saving people's lives, still yielding fruit, even when there's a drought, even when the heat has come. So that is the life that God is calling us to. And that is the kind of person when we love the Lord, love the neighbor, when we trust the Lord, and when we walk humbly with God and, and walk by loving other people. That's who God is calling us to be. And what better destination is there? What better life strategy is there? So let's use habits to change us and get to being that kind of person. Let's talk about something that I like to call, well, I just made it up, but I'm calling it the moment habit. And this comes out of a, an experience that I had three days ago. And it was when I was in the process of making a video about ordinary moments and trying to square those with this idea that there's so much more to life. So we come here and talk about God and about all this inspiring stuff. Remember we were just talking about it in the first half? But isn't that hard to having the same spoon as just you're sitting there and waiting for the laundry to be done or you are just having to do some routine mundane task over and over again. What is, why in a life that is aspiring towards these great things, if God really made all of life to bring us into this happiness that you can call heaven, why all this regular stuff all the time? And so I was pondering that and thinking through the different ways that you can make regular moments positive and effective. And, and I was just walking to my car right before lunch. Here's a picture of walking to cars. And that's, I didn't take that. That's not really what the parking lot looks like where I go, but I like this image because it's got the positive and the negative right beside each other. So you've got this bright spot where the sun is coming through, but you've got semi-ominous dark clouds around that. You've got some beautiful architecture, but you also have some decay. You can see in the white building in the front left is starting to fall apart a little bit. 
So it speaks to me about how these regular moments can go dramatically either way without anything happening, just with what you're thinking about and how you're feeling about the moment. Because I was walking to my car, like I said before, and everything was going fine. I'd been having a good time at work that day. There was nothing looming when I got home. And suddenly I just had this really palpable, really tangible inrush of anxious feelings and anxious conclusions. So I suddenly had this concern about how a later part of my day was going to turn out. I had this concern about some other stuff. And it hit me really so hard in that moment that it just absolutely made me think, oh, this is a great example of a normal moment being turned negative. Uh, I have a habit of turning normal moments negative because there's nothing that should make me more anxious just about walking to my car. It was just those, that moment that my fears and worries chose to try to claim as its own. And so I thought, hey, I think that I don't really like that. And it happens to me pretty perpetually, you know, throughout my life. I've always had this, these, this habit or this loop of when things are going fine, almost my brain is thinking up good reasons that things are not actually fine. So how do I break out of this? And I think a way we can do it is through habits. And in particular, something that's called habit stacking, which is this really sharp tool from the book Atomic Habits. So habit stacking is essentially the principle of rather than try to create something from scratch, you piggyback onto a habit you're already doing to establish a new habit. And in this instance, we're going to piggyback onto the negative habit that I have about worrying in a perfectly good moment about what could go wrong with a new sort of habit. So to explain the term habit stacking, this is from the book Atomic Habits. Habit stacking is a strategy you can use to pair a new habit with a current habit. Can we go to the next slide? Because this is all written out for all of you. The habit stacking formula is, this is really complicated, this is calculus. <clears throat> After I, current habit, I will, new habit. But it works. Because if there's something you're already doing, to tack on a new behavior to that, in my limited experience of trying this out over the past couple of weeks, is a lot easier than trying to start something from scratch. So what I want to do is give us the opportunity to stack a habit onto our tendency to make regular moments negative. I'm just going to assume that everybody shares my propensity for sometimes not seeing how uh, how great any given moment is. But I was noticing there as I was going to the car, like this, all this worry and all this fear wants to claim this moment as something bad. It wants to say, look, because there's this potential complication coming up and because this thing might be going wrong, right now is bad. But 
I want to assert that actually right now is not bad. Right now is good. And the habit that I want to introduce for us is that whenever that comes in, whenever you get your negative head weather, little storm front coming in and you start to worry about something or get upset about something or, or even get bored with the moment, the habit, so as soon as I am experiencing something negative in this moment, un, and I'd say something unnecessarily negative in this moment, I'm not going to try to, let's not for now work on when your car really does get a flat tire and being all zen about that. I'm talking about when nothing is going wrong and unnecessary negativity is coming in. So the habit I want to introduce is whenever I feel unprompted, that's another good word for it, unprompted negativity in this moment. So that's my first habit. My new habit is to say to myself, this is a great moment. So as soon as it comes in, my first impulse, like what's my reaction to that stimuli? Because habits are all about stimuli. So something triggers you into a habitual behavior. So what we're trying to get at is, so as soon as you feel that first rush of worry come in, the reaction is, this is a great moment. And let's just think for a second about how we can get away with saying something so audacious as this is a great moment. Because I think that the idea that there are just sort of mundane moments that aren't really doing anything isn't true. Because though life has its ups and downs and it's exciting and boring and it's positive and negative, it is all told within this framework of this absolutely great story that we're in. And the story is that divine love and divine truth, that the Lord, that God, is creating for us this path toward learning to love each other and coming into this, this community and, and by all these amazing ways that sometimes we understand and sometimes we don't, God is leading us toward everything that is good and true. The, the existence of love for people, the existence of good things and how the intent of God is to bring those things to be better and better, that each of us have our own character that can be improving and improving. It is a great story. And it's kind of like backing up into outer space because you, you maybe have heard this, this mind-blowing thing people can do where you say, hey, are you moving right now? No, we're not moving. We're all stationary. Well, actually, the earth is rotating at 300,000 miles an hour and going around the sun at a million miles an hour. You can tell I'm not an astrophysicist. And then the galaxy is moving around at a trillion miles an hour. And then the, the cluster of galaxies, you're actually moving hundreds of thousands of miles per second, but you don't even know it. That that's how exciting what actually is going on is. I want to assert that that's, that level of excitement is happening with our lives all the time that the Lord is constantly doing amazing things deep inside of us, navigating us through the ins and outs of life to let us learn more and more what it is to love the Lord and love the neighbor and walk humbly with our God, that God is bringing the human race by these amazing paths to eventually and deeply 
understand and love each other, and that there are people, more people that love you than you know or you think about, and life has more good things in store for you than you would ever think about. And if you take all that together, you realize in any given moment, this is a great moment. And I think because we can have such arbitrary, unnecessary critique in our own head of the moment, I think we owe it to ourselves to have our habit be, as soon as that comes in, remember what's good about this moment. So it might be worth devoting a little bit of time and cultivation to think, what, what is good about life? And you can draw from, sure, you can draw from the things right in front of you. You can draw from the good things in your life. You know, maybe you've got some kind of stability. You've got some kind of networks that you're a part of, and, and there's people that you love, and there's things that you love to do. You can draw from that. Then draw from your beliefs about who is God and what's God doing in our life. You know, maybe there are angels that you believe are, are around and helping you, and that there is a lot of good people in the world who would help you if, if the opportunity ever arose. Build that up in you so that you can say, as soon as there's some, well, what if, what if this bad thing happens to you? Don't you want to worry? The habit we can build is, this is a great moment, and it triggers us to think about what's great about this moment. And if you're able to do that, that is the, just one little habit that somebody who is working to walk humbly with the Lord and trust the Lord, I think that's a good little thing to append onto it. So this one habit, I'm sure that there are myriad areas in your life where you can already think of where you would apply this. And I would say, habit stack, think about your identity, think about who the Lord wants you to be, go out there and try to make these new connections. But as you do, you have to beware of the valley of disappointment. So this is from Atomic Habits, and it's this awesome concept where they actually have a little graph of it in the book, which is this is the valley of disappointment is why it's often so hard to get our habits to change. Because there is a straight line going up of where we expect progress to be. Let's say we set out to, okay, I am going to think about what's great in this moment whenever I get anxious or I get upset. I'm going to think about how this is a great moment. And you think, well, pretty soon I should be doing that all the time because I should progress in this upward trajectory. Or if you say, I am going to try to act with more love and compassion to people. I am going to set aside more time for religious exercises. And you think, I'm going to progress and progress. And then, and that's going to change my life and I'm going to feel happy. Well, the actual progress is this curve where it takes these good habits that are building up things in you that are changing you, that are making you more and more into the person that you want to be. The expression of those, when we can notice them, it actually doesn't kick in until later than you think. So while our expectations are that it goes like this, it's actually under here building momentum, and then it bursts up above, and you see the fruit of all these challenges, and you see this life change. But because it doesn't usually happen as fast as we think, the valley of disappointment is where people give up because they think it's not doing anything. It's not working. 
So if we can know that if God is asking us to be that kind of person, the support's got to be there. What kind of God is going to say, do this, and then you can't do it? What, if you were a teacher or a coach, could you get away with that? So the support's got to be there. It's got to be possible. And if we use these tools at our disposal, we can be on that trajectory. All we've got to have is a little trust in the process as we're building that up, because it does take time to change things. It does take time till our knee-jerk reaction is, this is a great moment. But as a little visit, vision, oh, as a, a little description of the Valley of Disappointment. Where, where do you live? The Valley of Disappointment. Small changes often appear to make no difference until you cross a critical threshold. The most powerful outcomes of any compounding process are delayed. You need to be patient. And that's, I think patience is the thing that can really equip us for this journey. But just as a little preview of the kind of place that we can go if we look to make spiritual things habitual for us. This is from uh, Secrets of Heaven 4353. The act comes first, our will to do it comes after. So we make this decision that we're gonna pursue this thing. We keep we doing it and doing it. You're not quite maybe feeling the joy you thought you'd feel in it. That'll come. What we do at the call of the intellect, we eventually do with a will and finally take on as a habit. So finally it becomes part of who we are. But it's a process, a multi-step process. At that point, it is infused into our inner rational self, so the deeper part of your consciousness. Once it has been infused, we no longer do good from truth, but from good. So it's not because I have to, it becomes, oh, I love doing this. I want to do this. Because we start to feel a certain bliss and a sense, and to sense something of heaven in it. I love that. Like, I can feel some heaven in this thing that I'm doing. This feeling remains with us after death when we're in the, the spirit. And through it, the Lord lifts us into heaven. So you can even be thinking about, look, this is building up this heavenly elevator that I'm going to feel some of in life, but it's going to it's part of who I am deep down, and it's going to be there. This is what creates this state of life and heart that we call heaven. So, developing heavenly habits. I just, like, we can, we can think, oh, there's, you know, there's spiritual things, and they're in a bucket over here, and then there's all of the techniques people have on how to change themselves, and they're in a bucket over here. But I think if we bring these two things together, if we try to take all the purpose and the aim and the compass that spiritual things give us and then marry it with these awesome techniques of how to get there, that's when we really see this changed life. That's when we're really able to follow this direction that that Jesus is calling us to follow. So I'm just really glad to get to share a little bit of that with you because it was really potently and powerfully affecting my life. And so I want to take a minute to let that sink in just a bit and actually do it through a little session of prayer. So I want to give you space to talk to the Lord about how you could work together to lead you where you need to go.
What kind of habits could you pick up? What could you do? You might want to take the moment to think about, if you want to start with a simple the moment habit and think about what is great about this moment right now. Step back and let God, God knows what's great about the moment. Let God just infuse that into you or kind of suggest or whisper, hey, you know, this is something that's really great. This is something that's really great about this moment right now.